As a Unitarian Universalist minister, I'm part of a larger professional organization called the UU Ministers Association that has more than 1,800 members on this continent and around the world, and we're currently in the middle of a UUMA-wide conversation. And two years ago, I was trained as a facilitator in this conversation. It's all around the question of where leads our call? As the first part of that program, I led um, a three, I co-led a three-day retreat last year in Delaware for UU ministers in this area on the topic of call and excellence, reflecting on both the promises and the perils of pursuing excellence in ministry. That word excellence can really call us to things. It can also be kind of cutting, that there's ways in which it is and isn't helpful. This past week, I co-led the second and final part of that program, this time on call and accountability. When this curriculum was written, there was no way to anticipate that the topic of call and accountability would uh, be how relevant the topic of call and accountability would be today in the larger Unitarian Universalist movement. As it turns out, three weeks before this retreat was scheduled to begin, the news broke that the Reverend Peter Morales, the president of our Unitarian Universalist Association, was resigning effective April 1st in response to a controversy around diversity in hiring practices. This resignation came less than three months before the end of his eight-year term, which was scheduled to conclude on June 24th with the election of a new UUA president at General Assembly this summer in New Orleans. Four days later, on April 5th, two more members of the UUA's Leadership Council announced their resignation. The Reverend uh, Harlan Limpert, the Chief Operating Officer, resigned effective April 20th. The Reverend Scott Taylor, Director of Congregational Life, resigned effective June 30th. Taylor had been at the center of the controversy, which erupted after he hired a white man, the Reverend Andy Burnett, to replace another white man as the head of the UUA's southern region, formerly known as the Thomas Jefferson region. There's a whole story there around uh, that and how that name change came to be. And a woman of color, a religious educator and church administrator, Christina Rivera, applied for but did not receive the job. In particular, she was told that you're fully qualified but not the right fit. And that word fit was, well, what, am I, what is it that I, that's up here that I'm not fitting into and why? All five regional leads of the UUA right now are white. Burnett and Rivera um, were both UUA trustees when they applied for the position, uh, the uh, conflict of interest policy was waived, not the best decision. Uh, the, uh, Andy has declined the offer in the wake of this controversy, so that UUA regional position remains unfilled at the present. The situation is further, further complicated since Peter Morales himself is the first Latino president of the UUA. So to me, something is broken in the system when the first Latino president of the UUA resigns over diversity and hiring practices, thereby himself lowering the percentage of racial diversity in the upper echelons of UUA leadership. Uh, to fill in this leadership gap, the UUA Board of Trustees has appointed three interim co-presidents. Uh, the Reverend Sophia Bellancourt, a professor of theology and ethics at Starking School for the Ministry, which is our um, West Coast identity uh, UU uh, seminary. 
She'll serve as the interim co-president on the Commission for Institutional Change to think about how are we doing things institutionally. Uh, the uh, second co-president is the Reverend Bill Sinkford, senior minister at First Unitarian Church of Portland, who was the first black president of the UUA. He served from 2001 to 2009. He will serve as co-presidents for the role of president as outlined in the UUA bylaws. And finally, you, uh, Leon Spencer is the third person sharing this, the full job of the presidency. He is a professor emeritus in leadership technology and human development at Georgia Southern University and the 2007 recipient of the UUA's annual Distinguished Service Award and will serve as the interim co-president for constituent outreach to sort of be reaching out to all the various constituencies in the UUA. How many of you have been following this like really closely? Yeah, I have. Uh, how many of you, this is like the first you've heard of it. I mentioned it a few weeks ago. All right. So, just checking in. Uh, so looking to the future, all three candidates on the ballot to become the next UUA president are white women. Uh, the Reverend Susan Frederick Gray, minister of the UU Congregation of Phoenix, Arizona. The Reverend Allison Miller, a minister of the Morristown, New Jersey Unitarian Fellowship. And the Reverend Jean Pupke, minister of the First UU Church of Richmond, Virginia. As another significant piece of historical context, when Peter Morales was elected in 2009, his election was the fourth contested election in which a male candidate was ele elected instead of a female candidate. This summer's election will be the first to feature only female candidates, and it will be the first since 1977 with more than two candidates. Now, depending on how deeply you want to dive into this controversy, a lot of ink has been spilt over this just in the past um, month. There's a whole lot of coverage. If you Google UU World, that's our quarterly magazine and website, you can read a whole lot about it there. And I'm choosing to address this topic today because in response to the controversies and resignations, and these are not firings, these are resignations. Uh, there's, I can say a lot more about that, but essentially, one, Peter was tired. Let's just, at the end of eight years, and I think he he chose to step back to create room and say, let's not spend the next three months talking about whether I did the right or wrong thing. Let's spend the next three months moving forward uh, and trying to set the groundwork so that the next president can hit the ground running. Uh, but the reason I'm addressing this topic today is that the Black Lives of UU Organizing Collective has called on UU congregations to schedule what they're calling a UU white supremacy teach-in on either Sunday, April 30th or Sunday, May 7th. Um, a teach-in is a play on that protest uh, movement sit-in uh, and has a connotation of an educational forum oriented toward equipping activists for social change. We're one of 633 congregations who, UU congregations who have accepted this challenge to say we will take time to address this. Um, beginning with today's sermon and next week we will hold a more formal teach-in. So if you can plan, if you come to the early service, if you can plan to stay for the middle hour or if you come to the late service, either come to the middle hour and or our, so I'll be leading a teach-in during the middle hour. Our Dismantling Racism team will be leading a separate teach-in after the late service. You can come to either or both. They'll be different. Um, our, and, you can, and we'll be continuing conversations to come. As you can perhaps imagine or may have experienced directly yourself, when leaders in, progr in a progressive religious movement begin resigning around accusations of perpetuating white supremacy, a lot of people get triggered in a whole lot of different ways for a confluence of different reasons. So as I prepared this past week to co-lead a retreat for nearby UU ministers on call and accountability, I incorporated the following reading into our opening session on what kind of covenant can we create about how we want to be together over the next few days. 
This reading is called An Invitation to Brave Space. It says, Together we will create brave space. Because there's actually no such thing as safe space. Because we exist in the real world. We all carry scars and we have all caused wounds. But in this space, we seek to turn down the volume of the outside world. We seek to amplify voices that fight to be heard elsewhere. We call each other to more truth and to more love. We have the right to start somewhere and to continue to grow. We have the responsibility to examine what we think we know. We're not going to be perfect. This space is not going to be perfect. It will not always be what we wish it to be. But it will be our brave space together, and we will work on it side by side. This challenge to co-create brave space reminds me of a quote that I reference each time we welcome new members of this congregation, that we reflect on what it means that Unitarian Universalism is a non-creedal but rather covenantal religious movement. Our word, that word creed comes from the Latin word credo, meaning I believe. And creedal religious movements seek to create unity around a fixed set of beliefs. In contrast, as Unitarian Universalists, we don't say sign on to this you know, intellectually assent to this creed. Instead, we sometimes say we believe in deeds, not creeds, and that we don't have to believe alike to love alike. So in the words of a former president of the UUA from back in the 1990s, the memory that we seek to embody is of forebears wise enough to put aside the creedal question of what do we believe in common for the far more profound covenantal questions of how shall we treat and help one another here? What hopes might we share? What promises shall we make to deepen one another's lives in the time that we have together? So through creating brave space, our goal is not to enforce a creedal orthodoxy or get everyone to assent to some perfect language. It's also not to make people feel guilty or ashamed. Our goal is to create greater awareness of where one another is actually coming from, to become more conscious of perspectives of which we were um, in various ways currently unconscious so that we more, might more authentically build a beloved community. And in the brave space that myself and my co-leader sought to create uh, on the retreat this past week, part of how we reflected on how UU ministers are called to hold one another accountable is that we closely studied the covenant of the UU Ministers Association. Now, some parts of that covenant are not surprisingly somewhat uniquely applicable to ministers, but I think there's a few parts of it that stood out for me this past week that I think may be um, helpful for us and for the larger UU movement. I'll read just this small section to you today. That we covenant together to be mindful of our potential unconsciously to perpetuate systems of oppression. That we covenant together to seek justice and right relations according to our evolving collective wisdom. And that we covenant together to cultivate practices of deepening awareness, understanding, humility, and commitment to our ideals. I'll say more about each in turn. First, that we covenant together to seek justice and right relations according to our evolving collective wisdom. That's a reminder that none of us 
has it all figured out. I would even go further, similar to that Brave Space reading, that perfect isn't actually possible. It's never going to be perfect. Everyone's never going to be satisfied by any one thing. That's an unachievable goal. Rather, at our best, we are ever-evolving, seeking to learn from the past to avoid repeating the same mistakes and to draw increasingly wide circles of inclusion. And it often only becomes possible to draw those increasingly wide concentric circles of inclusion as we become uh, more aware of those we have unintentionally excluded in the past or parts of people's selves that we have unintentionally excluded in the past. As the saying goes, intention doesn't equal impact. Or you may know the saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's similar. Intention doesn't equal impact. What I intend to do by doing or saying something doesn't necessarily um, line up with how it impacts you. Intention doesn't equal impact. Or in the second of our three points, we covenant together to be mindful of our potential to unconsciously perpetuate systems of oppression. This commitment is perhaps the biggest paradigm shift that that UU white supremacy teach-in is inviting us to wrestle with. Because we're not talking about the common understanding of white supremacy as people out there, like the Ku Klux Klan, who are what I would call conscious and aspirational white supremacists, right? They're aware of it, and they seek to get better at it, about being white supremacists. They're intentionally seeking to create a more racist society. And so you might think that uh, of learning to denounce um, conscious, aspirational white supremacy as entry-level dismantling racism work. It's vitally important work. I'm all for it. But I want to invite you to consider that there is also a more advanced level of dismantling racism in which we're asked not only to condemn blatant, conscious, aspirational white supremacy out there, but also to hold up the mirror to ourselves individually and collectively and investigate the ways that being raised in a racist, a classist, a sexist, a heterosexist society, an ableist society has caused each of us to sometimes unconsciously perpetuate systems of oppression. And I invite you to notice not only that word unconscious, but also the word system, because the problem is so much larger than anyone's individual prejudice or lack thereof. It's about the systems and the institutions, the laws and the attitudes all around us. Some of you may have read uh, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in an Age of Colorblindness, right? Everyone individually is like, I'm colorblind, yet somehow we have laws that lead to people of color being um, arrested and investigated. You know, uh, white people and people of color use marijuana at the same rate, yet somehow black people end up in jail for it and longer, right? That's, that's what we're talking about, dismantling systems, not just individual prejudice. So we need to do the work of both dismantling individual and systemic um, levels. So interrogating our implicit bias, some of you may know that word, Google Harvard implicit bias if you think there is no bias in you. Take that test. How many of you, have any of you taken the Harvard implicit bias test? It's a, it's a little sobering uh, if you haven't taken it. As w- so we need to do that as well as working together to write more equitable laws. Uh, and part of what was going on at the UUA is not that there was intentional conscious white supremacy. It was that there had been calls at multiple points to set up accountable systems of making sure we don't get to a place where all five regional leads are white. And because that wasn't, those systems weren't followed, we, we ended up in, in individual cases 
replicating white supremacy, where it's like we just all of a sudden ended up with all white people in charge. So that, that's the piece where if you don't set up accountable systems, and that's where Peter was saying, I'm going to step back because I feel like I've lost faith. People have lost faith in my leadership because of the results of it, even if they were unintentional and unconscious. The third part of the covenant that I'm inviting us to consider is to cultivate practices of deepening awareness, understanding, humility, and commitment to our ideals. So what, what kind of practices are these specifically? So when approaching difficult topics like racism, uh, practicing humility can be reminding yourself that we're entering into a brave space seeking evolving collective wisdom, that none of us have all the answers. So Entering it in light of that, that I might actually have something to learn here. There may be things that I'm currently unconscious of. So that practice of humility can invite us to move from defensiveness to curiosity. So instead of just saying, I'm, there's nothing for me here, to say, to be curious. What might there be for me to learn here? And if you're hearing that term, you, you, white supremacy, if that makes you feel angry sad, confused, ashamed, those are understandable human emotions to feel. I invite you both to feel them, but also to consider experimenting with that spiritual practice of curiosity. Ask yourself, what might I have to learn from reflecting even on a progressive religious movement like Unitarian Universalism from the perspective of our our potential to unconsciously perpetuate systems of oppression? And I'm not telling you you have to end up at some predetermined orthodox position. I'm merely inviting you to take that perspective for a test drive and be open to what new perspectives you might see. Also, in that sentence of covenanting to cultivate practices of deepening awareness, understanding, humility, and commitment to our ideals, I'm struck by that word, commitment. In regard to discussing difficult topics, one thing that can happen is just, I'm just going to leave, right? I'm just going to go away. I'm going to walk out of the room. And so a spiritual practice of commitment can mean staying at the table or coming back to the table after you walk around the block a few times and cultivating a capacity for being with our discomfort, that's saying, I'm not comfortable here, but I'm just going to cultivate a capacity to be with my discomfort a little bit to, to see what there might be that I need to learn and unpack. Because, again, there's a difference between safe space and brave space. There are times that we need to seek out places that are safe for us. But I invite you to consider there are also times that we need to create and enter into brave space when we are willing to show up, listen to new perspectives, and sit with our discomfort rather than retreating. Co-creating such a space together is not easy, but it is the authentic, life-affirming soul work of building a beloved community. Now, there's a lot more I'd like to say. I'll, I'll do a little bit next week on giving you a little thumbnail sketch of how we came to be here. You know, you really showed up in 1965 when Dr. King gave the call to, to come to Selma, and, it, and there were increasing numbers of people of color in the Unitarian Universalist movement. And then in 68 and 69 at General Assembly, there were walkouts because part of it had to do with promises that were made around a million dollars that was going to go to the um, Black Affairs Caucus that then because of financial... Um, I would even say mismanagement, the money wasn't there fully. And so there was financial insecurity. About half of it was paid. It never was and led to a, a strong sense of betrayal. People like Bill Sinkford, who in 2001 became the first black president of the UUA, left the UU movement for decades before coming back. 
uh, promises were made in 92 at, um, in of all places, um, Calgary, Canada, uh, to re- a recommitment to anti-racism. Because when I think of Calgary, Canada, I think, you know, anyway. The, um, and so that happened in 92. So it's the thing, so when you see, so there's been this, these cycles that have gone through. So that what happened with Peter Morales is, is, this, is part of this ongoing making of commitments, not fully living into them, some progress being made. So this, it's this ongoing cycle that's been going. So there's a large context to understand here. Uh, so there's a lot more I'd like to say about my personal experiences, about UCF, about UUA. Again, we'll have some time to go into that some in the future um, next Sunday at the teach-in, after both services, as well as in future conversations. But before closing, as many of you know, I planned my sermons a year in advance. And last year about that time, the person I planned to speak about was the renegade Baptist preacher, Will Campbell, who died about four years ago at the age of 88. Now, I'm not going to have a lot of time to say much about Campbell explicitly this morning, but the life of Campbell and other ancestors in the racial justice movement have deeply informed my approach to the sermon specifically and to the UUA controversy generally. Uh, I'll say just a little bit. Born in 1924, Campbell was part of the fifth generation of his family born in Mississippi. He was a white man raised in a deeply racist context. You heard some of that this morning in the excerpt of his writing that C. Raven read. But he grew up to be a lifelong activist for racial justice, and a lot of that had to do with reading the Bible and coming to say that he just came to say, I don't see how you can be a racist and a Christian. Like, it just doesn't work. In 1957, when, a court, when the court ordered the schools in Little Rock, Arkansas to be desegregated, Campbell showed up and was there to help escort um, young African-American students through those angry mobs in Little Rock. That same year, he was the only white person present at the first meeting of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC. There are many other stories along those lines, but he was known not only for showing up to be in solidarity with people of color in the struggle for racial justice, but for also showing up face-to-face to try to minister to the KKK. And that was, again, part of his conviction, as he wanted to live into a society in which there wasn't divisions along black and white, and he, he thought he had to show up in both places. I would invite you to consider this, maybe this is controversial, that another symbol of white supremacy is Campbell lived to be 88. King should be about that age. King should still be with us, right? But trying to do that sort of work of reconciliation, it got King killed. It just got Campbell, you know, persecuted. Uh, and in the words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., when he delivered the Ware Lecture, you know, so King in 1966 went to Florida to speak at UU General Assembly and delivered the Ware Lecture. I'll give you just one sentence of it. He said, We will win not only freedom for ourselves, but we will appeal to your heart and to your conscience. And we will win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. That was that sort of practicing of what Jesus said around loving your enemies that both King and Campbell and and others sought to practice of drawing a wider circle that would in the long run try to bring everyone together into a beloved community created out of reconciling love. Now, the way forward to do that is not easy, but I am grateful to be on that journey with all of you of trying to name hard truths aloud. In a few moments, we'll sing together hymn 121, We'll Build a Land. You can go ahead and start turning to that, 121. As we sing, though, I invite you to sing these words with intentionality. Be open to words and phrases as we sing this hymn that may particularly stand out to you.
How might those words and phrases inform our work together as we seek to be mindful of our potential to unconsciously perpetuate systems of oppression, to seek justice and right relationship with each other according to our evolving collective wisdom, and to cultivate practices of deepening awareness, understanding, humility, and commitment to our ideals? Please rise and body your spirit. Let's sing together. So I'll tell you just a few more things that the, when I think about this word white supremacy, you know, the, that's, it's a difficult one to hear. My wife is Jewish, so when I think about, you know, what, you know, white supremacy makes me think of the, the Holocaust and things like that. But it's, uh, you know, it's what, also what psychologists call externalization, right? It's easier to see things that are outside and in other people than it is to turn the mirror and look um, into your own soul. And, uh, and that language of white supremacy, I mean, part of why when I heard the, there's been pushback against it, which I understand, but um, some of you may have read the, the theorist um, Bell Hooks, you know, who writes about the need to dismantle what she calls the, the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. And so I guess I'd heard that so long from Bell Hooks that when I thought about a white supremacy teaching, I'm like, oh, it's just Bell Hooks. Why, you know, we need to dismantle the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, which to me maps right on to what Dr. King said. He said that the triple threats that hold us back from building the beloved community are racism, materialism, and militarism. That it's, and to me that maps right on to um, so racism, white supremacy, you know, you can flip between those terms. Uh, but it, but the white supremacy in particular is inviting you to see that the way that things are structured consciously and, and, or unconsciously in a way that as things sort out, white people end up on top. That, that's what white supremacy means, right? That, 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 that's, uh, and that things are done in a way that you just, by hook or crook, end up with all five regional leads of the UUA being white. Right, that that's um, with that, unless you're accountably and intentionally dismantling that and doing something different, so that race King's racism maps on to white supremacy, King's materialism um, or his uh, militarism maps on to patriarchy, and capitalism maps on to materialism. Right, so you can think about how those line up. I think there's also ways in which those map on to our. Um, mission statement as a congregation to encourage spiritual growth is sort of the opposite of materialism, right? That, that's one way that we seek to dismantle uh, materialism and um, that uh, building the beloved community is that, that racism peace and that acting for peace and justice as opposed to acting of um, patriarchy is you know, power over instead of power with. The other piece is when I think about Cornel West, uh, who delivered the Ware Lecture at General Assembly um, maybe two years ago. He said... Let me tell you something. He's an uh, African-American um, prophetic speaker, philosopher, said, let me tell you, brothers and sisters, when I look in my soul, having been raised in a racist society, I see that there's some racism in me. And he said, white brothers and sisters, if there's racism in me, I invite you to turn the mirror and, and look into that. Not the same racism as in the KKK, right? But that there's, there are some prejudices and some biases, either implicitly or explicitly in us.
Uh, and then the and then the a final piece for me about Will Campbell is that he also again coming from a, you know being raised Southern Baptist he he was he used that word sin right he was willing to also name um, one of the um, blind spots of liberalism can be. Uh, uh, undue optimism about society and individuals, and he was willing to say, we're probably never going to fully get it right, so let's just be aware that no individual, no institution is ever fully perfect, so we, we're going to still have work to do, and so let's be aware of that. Uh, so is, um, you know, we can't just dismantle society tomorrow, right, and that we continue to have um, uh, problems in, uh, of structural suppression, and, and that a lot of Here's the last thing I'll say. Uh, instead of that word unconscious, another way I've thought about framing it is the word invisible. It's the things that are invisible to us. So that as, you know, thinking about um, talking to my wife about her experience growing up, there are ways in which sexism was more um, visible to her and less visible to me, right? Because she stumbled over sexism in a way that I just kind of walked through life and didn't face those, right? So that uh, if people of color uh, that are going to stumble over racism in a way that, you know, I didn't know there was a thing called driving while black. My black friends had to raise my awareness of this thing called, it was not part of my experience. It was invisible to me. And so that, that's, that's the other part of that unconscious thing, so becoming more aware of things that you're currently unconscious, that are invisible to you, because they're the ways in which you are privileged, you know, so that's, um, so we don't see them. But our invitation as we become more and more conscious is to continue our journey in love to care for one another, and to care for this one earth, to do justice and to make peace. And whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out in the world. Whatever new angles of awareness on the world that you have, that goes with you. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.